Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Lessons from the VW emissions scandal. Jack Ewing. So, so, so this software was specifically designed to trick the test. Right. They, they so, actually plotted the curve. That, you know, there's a simulated driving cycle that the regulators use. They actually plotted that curve so the software would recognize it and crank up the pollution controls and make sure that the car passed. So that's just deliberately misleading. Yes. This is called a defeat device. Right. Exactly. It's a it's a <laughs> software, you know, originally back in the old days, it was something very simple, like if the hood was open, the emissions controls went on because they knew that the regulators opened up the hood to attach some equipment. Wow. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, we've seen a lot of cases where big companies behaved unethically or made terrible decisions. Enron, Wells Fargo, the BP oil spill. And in this show, we're going to talk about one of the biggest corporate scandals. I'm kind of outraged by this. Uh, Volkswagen's multi-year conspiracy, uh, fraud, if you will, to evade pollution rules with its diesel vehicles. Our guest is Jack Ewing, the New York Times correspondent in Germany covering economics and business. His new book is called Faster, Higher, Farther, The Volkswagen Scandal. It's a really remarkable look, not just into how the scandal happened, but also the culture of a very dysfunctional company. So Jack, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks thanks very much for having me. We're recording this episode in the offices of Jack's publisher, Norton Books, Midtown Manhattan, right down the street from the New York Times headquarters. So Jack, when you first heard about this story, when it first broke, did you have any idea that it would be such a big scandal? We knew it was big. I mean, the, when it first broke, it was on the front page of the New York Times. But I think it took a couple days to realize just how big a scandal it was. And when was this? This was September 2015, when the EPA issued a notice of violation against Volkswagen. And that's the first time that the public knew about this cheating. Give us a little thumbnail of, of what went on here around 2008. You know, VW was talking about these great new little diesel engines they had, super fuel efficient, fun to drive, uh, you know, a different kind of green car, different from a Prius that depends on batteries, and that this was going to be a fantastic alternative for drivers, but it didn't really turn out that way. Volkswagen back then was really trying to get back market share in the United States. They were trying to recapture some of the glory they had way back in the days of the Beetle. And they came up with this idea, we're going to compete with Toyota 
as the alternative kind of green technology. So Toyota, maker of the Prius, very successful with consumers in convincing them that if they drive this car, they're being environmentally responsible. And Volkswagen wanted to do this for for diesel. Right. And their idea was that you get with diesel, you get almost as good fuel economy, but you also have that nice diesel performance, which you might not get with the Prius. Just outline for us what Volkswagen did that was so wrong. The main thing was that they just, as they were preparing to do this big push in the United States, they realized that the engine, a new diesel engine they were developing, was not going to be able to meet the U.S. nitrogen oxide standards. So they decided to come up with some software, the engine control unit, the software that controls the engine. They programmed it so it could recognize when the car was being tested in an official emissions lab. Because those emissions tests, the car's up on rollers, but it runs through a very defined pattern, distinct speeds, distinct length. And so the engine can recognize. So they they program the computer to recognize when it's being tested and more or less turn off the pollution controls for that period of time, right? Yeah, and and also that these tests are done in a lab. They're not done on the road. I think the regulators are always more comfortable in the lab. I mean, it's Every test is the same. It's very standardized. It's a totally level playing field. When you get out on the road, there's all sorts of variables that are hard to control. So, so, so this software was specifically designed to trick the test. Right. They, they so, actually plotted the curve. That, you know, there's a simulated driving cycle that the regulators use. They actually plotted that curve so the software would recognize it and crank up the pollution controls and make sure that the car passed. So that's just deliberately misleading. Yes. This is called a defeat device. Right, exactly. It's a it's a <laughs> software. You know, originally back in the old days it was something very simple like if the hood was open, the emissions controls went on because they knew that the regulators opened up the hood to attach some equipment. Wow. Or if the steering wheel wasn't moving, then they the car knew that it was being tested. Uh, but then when computers came into cars it became much more sophisticated because you could plot the graph, you could time the period when the emissions needed to be compliant. Now, and the way the diesel engine works, without getting too technical, it squeezes a lot more energy out of a gallon of fuel by burning it at a higher compression, higher temperature. The problem is when you do that, you create all kinds of nasty forms of pollution. Tell us a little bit about what nitrogen oxide is. Yeah, well, in, in fact, a, a diesel engine is kind of a nitrogen oxides uh, factory because because of that high combustion temperature. And nitrogen oxides are, that's the main cause of smog in a big city. Um, there's some pretty dire health effects. And uh, so this is, this is why nitrogen oxides were controlled and what Volkswagen was having trouble getting under control. So they're really polluting, they're bad for people's health. Yeah, I mean, they, they will cause people to get asthma. If you have asthma, it can cause you to get an attack. There's studies showing that when nitrogen oxide levels are high in an urban area, that emergency room visits to hospitals go up, people coming in with heart attacks. Um, it's been linked to cancer. It's it's pretty nasty stuff. And it mostly comes from diesel engines. So there are ways to control this, though. I mean, so some of the more high-end diesels, like those from BMW, Mercedes, they have a couple of different systems, overlapping systems that manage this stuff pretty well. But then Volkswagen said, no, we can do it with a much less expensive approach. We don't need to spend all that money on this fancy technology. Right. It can, it can be done. 
Uh, but it, one costs money and two takes up space in the car, which is particularly an issue with a smaller car like a Jetta. If you have a, a Mercedes SUV, it's a lot easier to fit all that stuff underneath the car without uh, taking away from the trunk. So Volkswagen is kind of an odd company. And, uh, you know, it has its roots back in um, in the, the Nazi era. And the founder of Volkswagen was was a Nazi? Well, Ferdinand Porsche, I don't think he was a very convinced uh, Nazi, but he was certainly willing to accommodate himself to the Nazi party to meet his engineering goals. He was obsessed with cars. He just wanted to build cars, and whoever would help him do that was fine. I think he was very amoral in that sense. So he developed a relationship with Adolf Hitler, who wanted to have a car that everybody could afford. The people's car. Right, which was was really just propaganda. They never managed to build more than a few hundred uh, until the end of the war. So tell us, what is the company structure and, and why did that maybe make them a little more vulnerable to this sort of problem? Well, I think it goes back to actually to the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche, Ferdinand Piesch, who became chief executive in the early 90s, was himself an automotive genius uh, on the same level as his grandfather, I think, in terms of his understanding of technology. He did a lot of brilliant things to make Volkswagen and Audi into much more appealing cars. But on the other hand, he was very dictatorial, very unforgiving uh, because he knew a lot about cars himself. If he decided something could be done, he didn't want to hear from his engineers that it couldn't. So people did not say no to this guy. Right. So nobody could just say, I'm sorry, boss, we just can't get the engine to do what you're asking it to do. Well, by the time they did the software, he had become chairman of the supervisory board. So he was kind of a step removed. But his protege, Martin Winterkorn, uh, very much his uh, doppelganger in a lot of ways, um, was the chief executive. And certainly uh, you get the strong impression no one felt they could tell this person that can't be done. There had to be a way to make it happen. But But Volkswagen is a publicly traded company. So you would think that the shareholders would go, wait a minute, no. Well, that's the problem with Volkswagen is they never really had a lot of outside shareholders. It's the uh, the moment, the, the free float, the number of shares that you can actually trade on the stock market on. It's a little over 10%, I think. And the rest belongs to the state of Lower Saxony, which is where the company's located. Uh, more than half belongs to the Porsche family. So there's there's very little outside scrutiny from shareholders. And I think that was another source of the whole problem. And also under German law, German companies have to give a lot of seats to representatives of the workers or the unions. You would think without, if you didn't think about it much, you would think that might be a break against corporate malfeasance. But in this case, it kind of worked the opposite direction. Yeah. And it, you know, that can be a positive thing at a lot of companies, uh, but at Volkswagen, it was different than most companies because besides having half the seats on the supervisory board, which is standard in Germany, because of the state of Lower Saxony's stake, that was two more seats that almost always voted. With so the, the politicians who were on the board, had to they couldn't get reelected if they didn't have the support of labor. Right. So you had this culture that um, where you had to do it the way the CEO told you. It was a very engineering-driven culture, but not one in which people really felt that they could say no. Right. But you'd think that an engineering driven culture as opposed to a financially driven culture or a marketing driven culture would mean a more ethical company rather than less so. Well, I think my impression uh, is in this case, you know, engineers 
you give them a problem and they'll solve it. And uh, they'll look for the technical ways to solve it. And sometimes they need somebody who is not an engineer or has a different perspective to say, you know, wait a minute, you can't just think about making this happen from an engineering point of view. You have to think about the environmental consequences, the legal consequences. And that, that was missing at Volkswagen. There weren't those checks and balances. So the story of how all this came out is just so amazing and and hard to believe. I mean, looking back, it's hard to imagine that the Volkswagen people didn't think they'd get caught eventually. And yet this went on for years. So tell us how it was finally exposed. Well, it actually started with a, a group of students and professors at West Virginia University, you know, which is not the top of everybody's list. of it's not MIT. <laughs> no, uh, but actually they're very well known for their emissions program, which is not normally a very glamorous part of academia. And they had a grant from an environmental group, the International Council on Clean Transportation, that wanted to see uh, how the Germans were meeting the U.S. Uh, nitrogen oxide standards. So they and they had a hunch maybe they weren't right because they they were looking at how, why the European cities are all so polluted with so much smog. Right. Well, they 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 knew, and it's been known in Europe for a long time that you have these strict standards on paper, and yet for years they've continued to measure very high levels of nitrogen oxides in big cities, Paris, Barcelona, places like that. Uh, so they wanted to make the standards stricter, and the, and the European car makers, not just the Germans, were saying, no, we can't, it's too hard. And this ICCT, this nonprofit organization, said, well, but they're selling these cars in the United States. How are they managing that? So the, the idea of this grant was to find out how they were doing it. What they found out was that Volkswagen wasn't doing it. Uh, although I have to add, the West Virginia folks, they quickly realized that the Volkswagens polluted a lot more on the road than they did in the lab. They compared lab results to road tests, but they didn't really think it was wrongdoing. They thought it must be some technical issue. They didn't think there was a piece of software designed to, right. to trick the tests. Yeah, well, people trusted, trusted Volkswagen. It had a reputation for being a very green company, technologically advanced. I think for a lot of people, it's hard to imagine that they would do something like this. But nevertheless, in the past, Volkswagen had been caught up in some pretty unsavory scandals. There's this uh, colorful story of union representatives allegedly being uh, given prostitutes. So the company paid for these prostitutes. Uh, and, and there were also other scandals as well. Well, if you're in management, it's very important to maintain good relations with labor. And in the mid-2000s, it came out that Volkswagen had gone a little bit too far in maintaining good relations where they were paying for labor leaders, male labor leaders, to go on what they called pleasure trips, where they would supply prostitutes. One of the top labor leaders, Volkswagen, was paying for his Brazilian mistress, one of the things that strikes me, you see it both in that prostitution scandal and in the emissions defeat device scandal. There weren't a lot of people from around the world. Unlike most big auto companies today, they're very global uh, in their top management. But VW didn't have that. No, it's, it's very much dominated by Germans, very male-dominated. Uh, the first woman they ever had in the management board was a person they hired after the scandal broke uh, to handle compliance, and she didn't last very long. Uh, I think that was another issue, that it's it's people, not only all Germans, but people from who basically went to the same engineering schools. They all come out of exactly the same environment, have the same outlook towards the auto industry. 
This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Jack Ewing, Frankfurt correspondent for The New York Times, author of Faster, Higher, Farther, about the VW. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The emission scandal. How do you think VW compares to other large corporations? There are some unique things about Volkswagen, but I think the basic principle that if you set really ambitious goals and you make it clear that the penalty for failure is to be to lose your job, to get fired, you're asking for this kind of thing. I think it's not necessarily bad for companies to set stretch goals, but you have to make it clear what are the red lines? What are the boundaries? What are our values? And stick to those. And not just on paper, but I think the top management has to live those. So this is about business ethics. One of the solutions is that a company has to be very clear on what its ethics are to right. the people who work for it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, it's not only being clear about it, but I think it's really, really important that top management exemplify those goals. You can have all seminars and codes of conduct and compliance departments, but if people see that the, the managers at the very top are not really paying attention to these goals, that sends a much more powerful signal than anything else. When they were confronted, how did Volkswagen handle these disclosures? How did they work with the regulators over the next year or so? Well, there's documents showing that they had considered, apparently not for very long, the idea of being transparent. Uh, but instead, they they seem to have just sort of coldly looked at what are the options, how much information do we have to reveal? And then they spent really the next year and a half buying time, obfuscating, giving the regulators misleading or spurious data. Uh, it was mostly the California Air Resources Board that was doing the investigative work. So the, the California Air Resources Board very important organization right. in, in this country, a group of regulators who set standards for California, but also what they decide on often gets picked up to be the national standard. Right. And there was a number of, a number of states, uh, including New York, most, most of the Northeast. You can't sell a car in those states unless it's also approved by California. And when you talk to engineers in the auto industry, they are often more afraid of the Air Resources Board known as CARB than they are of the EPA. The, the regulators seem to be much cozier with the companies that they're regulating than they are in this country. 
well, the, the German auto industry is a huge part of the economy. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the country is like one big state of Michigan. It's, it's about half of all German exports are cars or car-related things. And here the emissions uh, enforcement is done by the EPA, you know, which has plenty of its own problems. But in Germany, it's done by the transport ministry, which is well known for being close to the auto industry. So is this a case of regulatory capture? Yes, certainly that is a big element of the story. And what is regulatory capture? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that means where the regulators uh, are more focused on protecting the industry than they are on protecting the So public. it's sort of almost like Stockholm Syndrome. You talk about a, what you call a headquarters mentality. Yeah, well, I think that it was, it was a company where the, the decision-making was very centralized in Wolfsburg, and not only in Wolfsburg as a place, but right at the very top of the, the management chart. Piech, who in the 90s was head of the supervisory board, and then Vinterkorn, the chief executive, his protege, they were involved in every detail of the cars, the products. Vinterkorn used to boast that he knew every screw in every vehicle. and So they weren't really interested in or paying attention to feedback they got from their executives in the U.S. or around the world or people from, from uh, different parts of the company. There was there's lots of uh, stories. There's a famous anecdote in the United States about how long it took the people in the United States to convince the people in Wolfsburg to put big cup holders in the cars they sold in the United States because the Germans just refused to believe that Americans drive around with hot coffee in their cars and, and eat meals while they're driving on the highway. In Germany, that would be very uncool. Yeah, I just love that. I love that. It just plays into those national stereotypes about the Germans being tidy and the Americans being slobs. How did they convince the brass from Germany to build adequately sized cup holders in their American models? Well, one of their German executives who was working in the United States and understood this problem, one day he had them all in Los Angeles and they had a fleet of Volkswagens, and he took them to the drive-up window at a McDonald's in Los Angeles, and they all ordered breakfast, and then he made them drive around eating breakfast while they were driving uh, to make the point that you needed the cup holders, <laughs> that you needed to have a car that uh, somebody could drive and eat and drink at the same time. And, of course, all their American competitors <laughs> had all those cup holders already there. Yeah. So how can we fix this? What if you're um, an executive or manager in a corporation that you feel is maybe flirting with an ethical line or you see something going in a, in a direction? Um, how do we how do we do it differently? Well, I think part of it is just uh, compliance departments, you know, which is kind of uh, a boring thing to talk about. But you do need people who are sort of keeping an eye on the process, how things are being put together, making sure that people aren't taking shortcuts. And they have to be people that themselves understand the technology. From what I understand, that was not the case at, at Volkswagen. You do need to have very clearly articulated values that are balancing the goals, the, the, the demands that you're putting on people. But again, I think the absolutely crucial thing is that top management has to visibly live these values themselves. They have to make it clear, this is what I really want you to do. This isn't lip service. This is what I really expect. Uh, and there can't be any kind of subtext that this is something we do for the public, for public relations, or to make the government happy, but really we behave differently. 
If you have that, then you're asking for the same kind of trouble. I know some people who listen to this podcast are not Americans. They, they live in Europe, and I don't want to come off sounding like an American jeering at the Germans for the way that they uh, run their economy or run their businesses. Are there lessons to be learned in this country, for instance, by the way that, that we regulate or the EPA uh, regulates um, companies and make sure that their emissions are, are in line with what they should be? Well, certainly, I think it's an argument for uh, you know more ro- robust ways of finding these defeat devices. It was obvious when they started putting computers in cars back in the early 90s, that was an obvious temptation for the auto industry to cheat. They're still pretty dependent on these lab tests. Uh, I think they've learned some lessons that maybe you need to mix things up and try to fool the defeat devices. But I, from what I understand, there's still a lot of resistance in the regulatory world to doing uh, this real-world testing, which is difficult in a lot of ways, but it's a very good reality check, I think. Um, a lot of listeners in the U.S. may not realize how big a company Volkswagen is around the world because they're seen as more of a niche brand here, but it's a huge company, and nonetheless, this cuts into their bottom line in a major way. How bad is it for them? Well, they had a big loss last year because of this, because of the cost of all the fines. They were profitable in the last quarter. It is a huge, very powerful company, basically neck and neck with Toyota to be the biggest uh, car maker in the world. But Volkswagen wasn't the first company to toy around with trying to get around the pollution testing. No, there was a pretty long history of that. Uh, and there was a big settlement against truck makers in the United States at the end of the 90s, uh, more than a billion dollars, which actually, for the domestic car makers, that set a pretty strong signal that this is not something you should do. But Volkswagen didn't get that memo. Jack Ewing, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Jim, one thing that jumps out at me right away in this VW scandal is that, is that nobody could say no to the boss. It's just extraordinary that there was that this vast company, and I think it's the world's number two car maker, would have such a rigid culture. It's really, I think that's one of the main takeaways here is that when companies make ethical transgressions it's not just one thing or one person it's a culture that's been built up over the years in that company and when we see these things we always our immediate impulse is well they're just such bad people and they were bad i mean this was not a subtle thing for the people in charge they knew they were breaking the law but how did they create the culture that allowed all those middle level engineers to devote years of their career to what was really a kind of a criminal enterprise and not see it that way. It's not enough just to say that they were evil. You have to look deeper. You've studied various businesses and how they react to catastrophes. Are there many different types of business culture? Well, it's not just business. You know, after the, uh, the 1986 explosion of the space shuttle Challenger, there was a big presidential commission. A lot of people who are old enough remember that. And it kind of led to all of us thinking, well, the NASA executives were cutting corners. They were trying to keep the shuttle on schedule for political reasons, for PR reasons. They deliberately rolled the dice on a risky launch. And a lot of really fascinating research went into showing, in fact, 
they weren't bending the rules. They didn't think they were bending the rules. When they approved that launch, they actually thought they were following the rules. So even organizations that we really that, – that bring a lot of discipline can still make these terrible mistakes. That's why I think that one of the big lessons here is don't be so smug. Don't be so sure that you and your organization might not also be falling victim to some similar sort of groupthink. You've got to give companies huge incentives not to do this kind of stuff. This is a massive hit for Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you said they were the number two auto company. Their, their fortunes are absolutely hammered, yeah. as they should be. Just the way right. BP used to be one of the largest oil companies, it isn't anymore because they did, they did one of the worst things any company could ever do. This is the good thing about capitalism, that a company that really screws up does lose market share. Its, exec, its top executives very often do lose their jobs. I mean, right. There's a terrific amount of fallout from this. And you're absolutely right about that. It's an unappreciated virtue of capitalism. People see the downsides of the companies that cheat. They don't often follow through and see the penalties those companies often pay. But here's one really interesting hidden lesson of Volkswagen. There wasn't enough capitalism there. Their board was not capitalist at all. They were, they had this, as he said, about half the board was union members or politicians who were supported by the unions. The family had managed to dominate the other board seats. So they really didn't have the normal protections that what we think a healthy company, public company has. Yeah, you, you didn't have, have the shareholder input. You have shareholders with skin in the game yeah. who have strong incentive not to allow management to get too... Um, Complacent. Too complacent. But there are some heroes in this story. There's the nonprofit group that commissioned these researchers at the University of West Virginia to take a look at emissions and yeah. do these tests properly. And the California Air Board, you know, the, 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 the pollution regulators in California also did a good job. But this is, to some degree, it's an indictment even of the U.S. regulatory system. Not as bad as Europe's. But it took him a long time to pick up on this. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs, and we could go on all day. <laughs> we sure could. <laughs> and our show is produced by Miranda Schaefer, and the music is by Lou Stravinsky, and also Davies Content makes these podcasts. Check us out if you want to do a podcast, whether you're a nonprofit or a business. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening.